0: hello everyone welcome to the bootstrap founder podcast my name is avid Khan, and i talk about how you can start run and sell a bootstrap business this episode is called made to stick shaping an extensible product let's get started it won't take long before customers start asking for one particular kind of feature and that's integrating into other tools that they use all the time they have adopted your product into their routine and their workflow only to notice that something is missing. Some steps need to be taken to get your product to seamlessly join into the range of other tools that your customers use to solve their problems. You're looking for a product workflow fit. While it's great to be able to use your product as a standalone solution to the problem, your customers would value it much higher if it comes with two kinds of integrations, input integration and output integration. To provide a basic level of both, build your product to accept and return data in common used data formats such as the eternally requested csv the comma separated value format if the workflow requires interactions with cloud services you'll find that most of them provide easily used and well-documented apis but we're going to talk about all of this let's start with input integrations first find out the shape of your customers data at the outset of the problem Let's say your audience is plumbers who need help requisitioning new inventory of their pipe fitting supplies or something like that. Do they already have an inventory management system that has an API? Are they maybe using an Excel sheet or a Google spreadsheet? Do they have such a system at all or do they just go and check their inventory, the storage regularly? Whatever it is, you will need to allow your customers to use the system they already have in place forcing them to adopt another system just because your product only works with that is a surefire way to build a tool that your prospective customers won't even try every kind of additional input format you support will open your product to more potential customers this requires research and expert knowledge of the field you're operating in of course at some point the fraction of customers will be so small tiny, a niche within the niche, and their potential revenue will be lower than what it costs you to build and maintain a particular integration. That, too, requires insight into your market. Whenever you work with data imports, here are a few basic ideas. First, integrate the industry standard format. Many industries have developed common interchange data formats over time, often over centuries, well, at least decades maybe. And they usually are specified in great detail. This is an easy choice if you want to support the biggest number of customers. And I say centuries here kind of jokingly maybe, but there are some industries that have not changed the way they treat data over hundreds of years, right? They've been tabularizing the data all the time. If you look at the way that financial records are kept, the format of the data may be digital, but the data behind it, the structure behind it is centuries old. So these things are documented, well-documented, and you can find them. An Industry standard is usually retrievable through, I guess, industry st- standard bodies, right? Let's go with the plumbers. Again, as an example, if you find the, the pipe fitting association or something like that, and you actually ask them if there is a data standard for inventory management, if they know it, and if they know of it, they will tell you, and they will give you information because they have access to that as the industry standard body. So that will definitely help. Always look for that first. Then second, integrate comma separated values, CSV. Uh, This is the lingua franca of data, at least at this point still. Almost every software tool eventually understands and produces comma separated values. And you would go amiss if you didn't integrate it into your product, as long as it's useful to your audience, right? Don't integrate it into a B2C product where people don't even deal with data. They just like, like Tinder, right? Tinder is not something that needs a CSV export, at least maybe only for academic purposes or nefarious things. But for the product like this, you wouldn't need it. But the moment you interact with data that customers have and that they can shape in some way, CSV is always a good idea. Then second or third, I guess, at this point, integrate Excel files and Google Sheets. Often that's the highest stage that your prospects will reach with their self-invented and self-organized systems, the these are the systems you intend to replace. So make it easy to migrate the existing data into your product, right? This is the thing that April Dunford calls competitive alternatives. They're not competitors. Excel, like Microsoft and Google, are not your competitors in your little SaaS niche, but their Excel product and the Google spreadsheet product are alternatives to what you offer. So giving people a path to migrate from those competitive alternatives to your product will make it much easier for them to actually join the product. And finally, integrate JSON and or XML. It really depends. When there are already existing services and APIs in your space, just make your product compatible with the outputs. Remember, your product exists in the landscape of other services and fitting into your customer's workflow is your way to adoption. All right, let's talk about output integration here. We talked about input integration. Output integration is quite similar. What's true for your customer's workflow before they use your product is also true for when you've solved a critical problem successfully. They need to continue with other steps. Allowing the data to be easily utilized right after using your service will significantly increase your customer retention and turn your product from a nice to have into a must have. When you look into which data formats your customers expect, look into both the immediate steps that follow and the final outcome of your customer's task. If you can supply data in a shape that allows for both to be maximally valuable, you're helping twice. If you can enrich your customer's data with something that they use later down the road, your product delivers value even when they're done using it. So when you're exploring what shape your result data should have, here are a few thoughts on that. First, again, produce the industry standard format. Right, We talked about importing it and producing it. Same logic. As with the input data, this will give you access to the largest groups of pr- prospective customers, It will also make sure that other tools that eventually integrate with your solution implement this format, further normalizing the industry standard. And that's really important. If there is a standard, providing it will make it much easier to integrate your product and will cause other products that think that your product is a good idea. These other products will then use and implement the standard. And that's really, really relevant for an industry standard to actually proliferate in the industry. So by producing and importing it, you're doing the industry service and your product is most compatible. Second, allow for CSV data export. Your customers may not need it all the time, but this data format is surprisingly re- re- relevant for retention. It's commonly used when your customers want to experiment with what using your data with another tool would be like. If you allow them to do this easily, you can further consolidate your product as an essential part of completing tasks. Fourth, produce machine-readable data, like JSON or XML. We talked about this. A service that can be accessed by humans and machines is twice as valuable as one that can only be used by people. Allow your more technical customers to use your product in a programmatical way, and the impact of your solution will increase significantly. After all, the types of solutions that other businesses can create by integrating your service as one of many are thousandfold and extraordinary. You would never know what could come of this. So providing data in a machine-readable format is quite important. And why? Well, just think about how much that would facilitate reporting, both providing machine-readable data, like JSON, or a CSV data export, but whatever problem your service solves. It's likely that someone has to report what they've been doing and how well they've done it. In any industry, for that, just make it easy for your customers to export their transactional data, like how often and how much they've used your service. This is also a selling point when you're trying to convince managers and team leads to purchase your product. That way, the problem solves or the product solves your customers' critical problems, as well as allowing their managers to measure their performance, and that's a win-win-win situation. And that can obviously be facilitated by making data exportable in a machine-readable format that can then be imported by reporting tools that people use in the industry you're in, which is also something you should be researching, right? That's the kind of research into the result format, into the output requirements that people have. So where does this data go? Is it just used to continuously manipulate the data inside the kind of format or inside the result that you give them or is just producing the data already an interesting data point somewhere else if you can provide that particular kind of information you're serving two people at the same time so let's talk about integrating beyond data formats here input and output integrations cover the basic data workflow that your customers have for deeper integrations you can build extensions that integrate other SaaS or standalone software products that make up parts of the daily operations of your customers. Many SaaS products can be integrated programmatically using usually like OAuth for authentication or API key-based um, credentials. Either way, they can provide a number of interesting opportunities. The most basic integrations enable you to access um, some subset of your customer's data stored on another SaaS service either temporarily or until the access is revoked. More advanced integrations will make things like data synchronization, manipulation, and reporting a highly automatable and time-saving endeavor. All of which are highly valued as additional side effects of a tool that solves your customer's critical problem. Think about how you can enable other businesses to integrate with your product as well. How would offering a programmatic Interface enable other services to provide additional benefits to your customers. How could a service at another part of your customer's workflow benefit from a direct integration into your product? Could that remove superfluous steps like data conversion or export import kind of things? If you can provide a means for developers to integrate your product into theirs, you amplify the reach into your audience by overlapping it with theirs. Right? You have access to two audiences because. If they offer an integration, they will have to name and kind of market your product with it. On the user experience side of your customers, consider supplying browser extensions. Often a little button or a link placed into another website can make all the difference. This was the first integration we built at Feedback Panda, and I'm gonna talk about this at length later, I guess. We just quickly, we added a little panda face, already our logo at the time, into the online classrooms by that our customers were using for their actual jobs by having our customers install the Chrome browser extension. That was pretty much it. You click the little button that would open a new tab, transmit a bit of information about the classroom to an endpoint on our site, on our application, and our front end would automatically import that information into a form. That was very simple, but it saved the customers a few dozen clicks and a few seconds of typing every time they needed to create a new record, which was every 30 minutes for 8 to 10 hours a day. It wasn't very hard to convince people that that was valuable, right? A 10-second video of that was all we needed. So browser extensions are easy to create and deploy, as browser vendors have established browser extension stores that allow for automatic deployments and updates. And Building an extension is straightforward, as there is a lot of good documentation on it available, and it's highly specified, the Um, Yeah, the file format and all these kind of things is very easy to do. But a word of warning about browser extensions into third-party services and websites. At Feedback Panda, we integrated into a lot of online schools' web portals. These businesses changed their products a lot and without notifying anyone in advance. Since we never partnered with them, there was no way for us to ever learn about this kind of change before it happened. So any changes to the data that our extension needed to work on their end would break our extension and we would have to release the fixed version. Consequentially, we had to implement continuous automated tests and alarm systems that would tell us immediately when such a change happened, so we could react quickly. As the browser extension stores can take a few hours to distribute an updated version, being quick to deploy a fix is essential to have as few customers as possible impacted by such issues. But again, talk about that later. If the browser environment um, has certain limitations that prevents you from fully solving a customer's problems, such as blocking notifications or native file system access, you can always build and offer dedicated desktop and mobile applications for your system, for your service as well. Only do this if it's required to use your product efficiently though. Building, maintaining, and deploying installable applications is a Herculean effort compared, compared to SaaS products. In a SaaS product, you, you have complete control, but if you deploy something, all of a sudden you have three different code bases and you have to support different versions of different operating systems, all with their own update schedules and idiosyncrasies and little problems. If you can, restrict your product to a SaaS solution as long as you don't have the resources to build a standalone application at the same time. To make your product easier to integrate with other programs, provide a machine-accessible interface, such as the REST API or any other way to automatically ingest data using a commonly used and trusted authentication method. That's as generic as I can say it, but there are many ways, and none of them are necessarily wrong. It really depends on your industry. This also allows you to monetize your product at scale, By offering pricing based on API usage, you can create new subscription tiers that are much more interesting to your more technical users that are used to being built like this. So let's talk about a very important point here, the risk of integrations. There is a risk of relying too much on these kinds of integrations, which is platform dependence. If integrating with another tool is the only way your product is usable, then any change to that product will be something you have to deal with immediately if they adjust their product you will need to make sure your product still integrates if their business fails all the customers you gain through that integrations may not need your product anymore so whenever possible aim to integrate with multiple competing solutions do you integrate with mailchimp offer integrations into email octopus getresponse and convertkit as well should one of these providers go away You can even help your users migrate to another one that you actually support. Be very conscious that whenever you integrate into a service or another service integrates into your product, both services become a slightly more interesting target for a cyber attack. There's value in customer information, both the personally identifiable information of your customers and the business data they keep with you. Be extremely cautious of making any such information easily retrievable through automated means. Always imagine the worst way an integration could be exploited and protect your customers and their data with a level of attention that borders on paranoia. You really need that because if you don't have control over where data goes, you should really restrict the data to the the data that's actually needed, right? You don't want to be able, or you don't want other people to be able to read data that they shouldn't be able to read. Make sure you're legally allowed to integrate with the services and sites that you choose. Although web scraping content has been declared legal in many jurisdictions, not every business appreciates automated integrations into their products or data. Be ready to ask for permission and study the terms of conditions, terms and conditions of the services in which you interface with. When you allow for integrations into your service, keep a close eye on the performance impact they have on your infrastructure. While you have a complete control over your own software, the interactions caused by third-party products cannot be easily influenced. If a service is hammering your backend with hundreds of thousands of requests per second due to some sort of misconfiguration on their end, you need to be able to maintain a stable system, be prepared to cut off access to your service for specific consumers, and build a resilient infrastructure that can deal with heavy spikes of traffic. You don't know how easily the delicate interconnectivity of services can be upset by a simple programming error somewhere in one of the systems. doesn't have to be yours. And since you don't know that, you have to be able to quickly turn it off. In short, think of the institutional risks of integrating with other services. It's perfectly fine not to integrate with a service if you fear that it could cost you dearly in the future. Integrations are supposed to amplify the usefulness of your product, not to bury a time bomb beneath the foundations of your business. So let's finally talk about fostering extensibility. There are a few ways to make a product that sticks around. You can make it an integral part of a vital workflow, or you can make it so compelling that people will change their workflows to fit the product. A way to do both of them at the same time is to just create an extensible product. So there are also two main ways of extending the product, extending the interface, or extending the service itself. Interface extensions will allow your users to create, use, and manage widgets that integrate into your service and will enable them to do specific non-generalizable tasks directly in your product. An example of this would be like a widget that displays industry-specific time series graphs drawn from your data. Or if you look at Intercom and their little app store that they have, there are widgets in there that just integrate calendly. They pull it in to a conversation, that would be an interface extension, right? It's using a service that is somewhere that's sitting on the front-end part in the interface. And then there's service extensions, which allow your users to integrate plugins that enable them to use specific, also non-generalizable functionality to manipulate the data that your product uses. And an example would be a plugin that would pull in weather data from a public API into your supply chain management service, stuff like that. More back-end kind of integrations. If you understand your product to be a source and a target for integrations from the start, opportunities for extensibility will appear all over the place. And take the ones with the highest impact on the most customers and implement them first. I talked about this in a prior episode on feature prioritization. This is also a feature, so it should be prioritized just so. In some cases, you can also enter partnerships with the companies that sell the services with which you integrate And that would allow for cross-marketing and mutual value add. So let's just close this saying that there's a lot of opportunity in integrations. There's some risk in integrations as well. And you really have to think it through how it would impact your business, your product, your infrastructure, and the outlook on your product and your whole business in the future. All right. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my recently released book, Zero to Salt available on Amazon and Gumroad. If you've already read the book, I'd love to ask you for a rating and a review on Amazon, and that would help me out a lot. So let me quickly talk about our Feedback Panda integration. I kind of hinted at it already earlier. So from the beginning, from the initial idea of Feedback Panda, having some sort of integration was part of our MVP. Like we always wanted it to be not just a SaaS, but a SaaS that integrates into the existing ecosystem that our teachers um would need to use it in. So maybe as a quick refresher, if you don't know what Feedback Panda did, we built some sort of student feedback generation and um customer relationship management system for English as a second language teachers who taught online. That's the quickest way of saying it. So our teachers would have 30-minute classes or 25-minute classes with particular students teaching them a particular predetermined lesson. And then they would have to write feedback for that student for the parents to read. And they would do this 20 times a day. And since the students were changing a lot, but they were often teaching the same student just different um, kind of lessons or teach the same lessons to different students... We could kind of reliably generate feedback templates or those teachers that bought our product could write their own templates and reuse them to quickly generate feedback. So that was the idea. That's, that was our customer um, audience at that point. These particular teachers that were teaching in this particular style, mostly for Chinese online uh, English learning schools that had children or young, um, young people as their audience in China themselves. So Danielle, my co-founder and partner, she was such a teacher and she noticed while she was teaching for one of these companies that the classroom, which was web-based, happened in a browser, right? It was like a Skype video chat in a browser window, that the URL for each of the lesson had a unique kind of structure and there were numbers in there, in that URL. And then we tried to figure out what they meant and we understood that there were three numbers. One represented the classroom, the unique ID for this particular class. Then one represented the student, which was a unique ID for every single student that was being taught. And one represented the lesson. And that made it very interesting because all of a sudden, instead of having people um, need to select which student they taught and which class they taught um, before they could generate their feedback, we could pull in these IDs. And if they had taught that student or lesson before then we could pull in the template that was associated with it automatically. And that is the level of kind of value creation that for somebody who teaches 20 lessons a day and only has five minutes in between them is a significant thing. So we tried to build this integration from the beginning, and we did. It allowed us to automate this creation of feedback for known students and lessons. And that was the magic of Feedback Panda from the beginning. That there, without needing to write a single word, a teacher could get their student feedback almost finished. Right? They they would have um, they would click on this little button in their classroom, the the little panda button, and it would pull up the student they probably had taught before and the lesson that they had taught before. Because overall, there was like two hundred different lessons. So a couple weeks into teaching, you would have taught all of these lessons already. So you would have a template, and would you would click on it, and text would appear finished feedback and you would then customize it in a way that um, added some particular information about this lesson that you just taught, but the feedback itself, the the information that didn't change, right? What did you teach them um, and what the names were that was already finished for you. So that was usually taking 10 minutes of manual typing and it was condensed into one click. And that was the value prop that we had with our product. And for that, we just needed some sort of integration that allowed us to actually get right into this window. And the only way to do this at that point was a browser extension. That worked pretty well, but um, it, all, like I said earlier, there are a couple of risks because we never partnered with these schools because there were way too many and they were doing their own thing. They were not really interested in partnering with anybody at this time. So our tool was essentially an, an integration that was <laughs> aspirational in a way. We didn't know when they would change their product. We didn't know when they would push updates to their their website. We wouldn't even know which kind of updates were coming. They kept us pretty much under wraps. So we had to build infrastructure to alert us that a new version of the website um, was deployed. Um, So I had to build like little kind of services that regularly checked the e-tags on the, the headers of these kind of websites to see what... It was most recently updated that this kind of stuff only happens when you have a browser extension or do scraping, when you never know when the data format changes. This is like the lowest layer of integrating into somebody else's product that you can actually um, be on, I think. There are two more layers here, and I just want to quickly talk about them. I mean, I mentioned them already. It's like API integrations, both of them. But there there can be a one-sided and a double-sided integration. One side it just means you use their API and if you're lucky there's good documentation and a change log and some way of you for you to learn if there are changes that are going to be coming in the future and how they would affect your current integration. That's like the next best layer after just scraping somebody's website or integrating into their directly into their DOM, into their HTML hoping that they don't change things so your extension breaks, which it did often for us. Right? which is why we needed to build these little sentinel things that checked what changed or if something changed. And the, the best case after having a one-sided API integration is, a, for the lack of a better phrase, a double-sided API integration. Like You integrate with them and they integrate with you. That turns into a partnership. right? That's what um, two businesses coordinating something actually looks like. And that's the most stable kind of integration you can have and I guess if you have a choice between the three of them, that's the one I would take because there is reliability in knowing when changes are going to happen. You will publish your changes to them. They will publish their changes to you. And there will always be some sort of communication, right? It's not just like hoping for things to not change in a breaking way. So I think it's, it's most, most important here is to understand that changes are either communicated or they are not. And you want to be on the receiving end of this communication as much as possible if you build integrations into your product. Because otherwise, you will just try and figure out how to deal with these breaking changes all over the place, all of the time. It'll take a lot of your attention. It will cause severe anxiety. Did that for me because as the sole developer of Feedback Panda, whenever something broke, didn't matter when during a day, I needed to fix it within a couple minutes and then deploy it because otherwise there were 5,000 customers who couldn't use their browser extension anymore. And that kind of stuff you want to avoid if you also want to build a stable and sustainable business. So really make sure you get, if you ever build an integration, you get as much communication and warning of changes ahead of time as possible. Because that is what really, really caused a lot of stress for me while we built this thing. So just want to warn you here. All right. Um, thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, And you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book, Zero to Sold at zerotosoldbook.com. If you have questions about this episode, reach out on Twitter or send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com. If you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratethispodcast.com slash founder. It'll help other founders or founders-to-be to to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their bootstrap businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.